you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them to Acts chapter 15. We'll be starting right in verse 1. And we'll be heading uh, right around verse 35 today. But before I get to my text today, I want to talk to you about an ongoing debate that's happening. And it's not a debate that's happening in the church, but it's a debate that's happening in the realm of educational philosophy. Specifically, this idea of new math. And now, I just heard all the teachers groaning. Uh, I would become angry or whatever, but there's this debate about new math, that new math is maybe not as efficient as old math, or whatever it might be, but in basic terms, there are two ways to come to one answer. And one way is a little bit quicker, and the other way is not uh, a little bit longer, but that's not the issue. It's the, process, it's the process that brings about the disagreement. So the point is that we can sit here and debate math until the cows come home, and you can argue that old math is more efficient, and new math is, uh, explains more the process, which makes it less efficient. Now, if you disagree with me on that, don't argue with me. I hate math anyway. I don't care. Uh, talk to Elizabeth Foundation, or she's the next word there. But, uh, however, you can debate this idea with math, but you can't debate this idea when it comes to the gospel. Because it becomes a problem because there are some in the church who say, well, I can go all these different ways to the Father. But it just matters that I get there. It doesn't matter how I got there. It just matters that I get there. Now, with math, you might be able to have a philosophical argument to make your point and defend. But in the gospel, there is no way that you can defend that notion. It's unbiblical. There is only one way to have a relationship with God. There's only one way to give me a heart attack. I'll get two this morning. Yeah, that's right. You guys just know I'm a jumpy man, so. <laughs> but there's only one way to the Father, and that's through Jesus Christ. No other way is sufficient. There's other ways that promise a lot. There's other ways that sound true, but they are false. There's only one way to have a relationship with Jesus, or with the Father, and that is through Jesus. And we must see that, we must understand that, and we must defend that as a church. So if you've been walking with us through this journey of Acts, we have walked through many encounters of men and women who have taken to, uh, serious the command in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, that Jesus says, You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, even to the ends of the earth. And we have seen these stories and these encounters of amazing signs and wonders that have been done. And now we find ourselves in Acts chapter 15, which I've learned that a lot of pastors actually tend to skip over this chapter while they're preaching through Acts because it tends to deal with a lot of theology, but there's still a lot of life going on here. And this chapter actually illustrates, in my opinion, a hinge moment in the church history, a turning point. And what do I mean by that? Well, if you study the 2,000 plus years of church history, there's a lot of it, a lot of good and a lot of bad. What you'll see is there's maybe seven or eight hinge moments in the history of the church that define the church that was kind of make it or break it type moments, and this is one of them happening. And what we see when we come to these hinge moments are there are these two common denominators that are leading up to it. The first being intense attacks by enemies both inside and outside of the church, and the second being a demand for new spiritual determination and drive. And the best way I can think to illustrate for you from church history one of these hinge moments that you'd be familiar with, because there's a couple that are pretty obscure, is uh, in 1517, an Augustinian monk, Martin Luther, nailed his 95 
theses to the church door, the Catholic church door of Wittenberg, Germany, because he was seeing all of the attacks going on inside and even some outside of the church. And it was a pivotal, excuse me, a pivotal, a pivotal moment in the history of the church. So Martin Luther began to investigate scripture for himself, and out of that produced a drive and determination for spiritual renewal, or we call it reformation. He decided that he had enough. Something had to be done. So he nailed his 95 Theses, which wasn't the, uh, the only thing that started the Reformation. It was kind of like a match to a lot of gasoline. There's a lot of gasoline being poured around, and he lit the match. And it started this Reformation. We are so thankful that Martin Luther had the courage to do that. He looked at the inconsistencies and abuse going on in the church, and decided enough was enough. Something had to be done. And I would suggest, and many other Christian leaders today would suggest, that we are on... Uh, the doorstep of another hinge movement for the history of the church as we continue going further and further in a post-Christian world. People who have been saved, but now their kids and their kids' kids no longer know the Lord. Do you know that we are actually, Generation Z is the least evangelized generation to ever walk the face of the planet? That's scary. We are headed to another hinge moment. And I believe that revival is at our doorstep because of these common denominators that we just mentioned are prevalent and apparent to the church today. Attacks from the inside and outside. And I'm praying that God would send revival to this church, the Fellowship Baptist Church, our Lord, that he would send revival to this town, that we go from this town throughout the world. And that's why I am just going to give you a little teaser. We're prepping a seven-week series right now on revival that will be delivered in the fall to prepare us for what God wants to do here in the valley. But I can go down that bunny trail and I'll refrain. So back to Acts chapter 15, we have this hinge moment that's before us. And it's a really big, important thing. In the spirit of math, I thought that I would just give you a couple of math formulas in the text. And just so you know, Bible math never makes sense. So if it don't make sense, blame the Bible. But uh, the first one is belief plus conformity equals confusion. If you have your Bible, let's start reading. But some of the men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the customs of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and to the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Syria. I'll, I'll take you all down. Described in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. And when they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said it was necessary to circumcise them and, and, and to order them to keep the law of God. So what we see going on, remember where they were last week. We ended with Paul and Barnabas being stoned with Paul, and then they're going back to Antioch, and they start to explain everything that God has done for them and through them, how the doors of the church were opening more and more to the Gentiles. And then they come back to Antioch, and they're celebrating this. But then we read right in chapter 15, but some brothers came in. Those Judaizers have come back, and they begin to stir the pot. Now, Imagine with me for a moment that you in this room, you are dying of dehydration, which some of us might be after the walk. 
take here. But uh, and I come upon you, you're you're on your last legs, and the only thing that you would that would make you survive is a good intake of fluid. But imagine as I come and I see you uh, struggling to live, and all you need is water, and I say, hey, I have some water for you, but before I hand it to you, I, I just drop a little bit of poison in there. And I put the cap back on, and I shake it up, and I say, here you go, Saulo. This is what you need to live. Right? Now, now, I'm, now, the thing that was sure to give you life, the thing that was sure to make you survive is now certain death. If you drink it. Now, if we take that illustration and we put it onto our text today, Jesus Christ is the living water. His gospel is our source of life. And what we see here is the Jews taking this bottle of water, per se, that you need to live, and just dropping a little bit of poison in it. And the gospel that was sure to give you life is now certain death if you take it. And we said, we said this last week. We see every time the gospel is going forward, there are these Judaizers who are coming around. It's like they're following them. They got them on Google Maps or something, and they're going around with them, and they keep saying, no, 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 you got to be circumcised. you got to do this. you got to do that to be saved. It can't be that simple. you got to check things off this list. And by, by adding to it, they are making the gospel poisonous. It's no longer the gospel. You see, these Judaizers believed in Jesus plus conformity to the law. And they believed that, there was, that this was their hope, that this was their righteousness, and it was based upon their performance, and it wasn't a free gift, that they had to do something alongside. They began to describe that one's relationship with God is built upon what they do and not upon what Christ has did. They were completely controlled by their traditions. How often are we controlled by our traditions? Right? Their traditions hindered them from truly understanding God's saving grace. Their practice was more rooted in the words and traditions of the Pharisees than it was in the word of God. The gospel message cuts through to the heart of the pharisaical traditions, or in our terms, our legalistic understanding of the gospel. And the gospel penetrates this ideology, and it really comes down to the heart of the gospel in answering this question, how does someone receive right standing with God? How is someone justified in the eyes of God? And what we have to understand is that the heart of the gospel is worth fighting for. The heart of the gospel is worth dying for. We talked about this last week and the repetition in this text should speak to us clearly that the gospel in every age, just like in 1517 and now in 2022, must be protected because it will be under attack constantly. It will never relent. The gospel will always be under attack and it will come within our walls and we must protect it. Now, that doesn't mean that you get to go off and be a crusader, that every time you hear someone say something you don't agree with, you bash them over the head with a Bible. If you're doing that, at least use a big, thick King James one, right? Just get them. But that's not what you're called to do. You're not called to go onto every social media post and say, no, you're wrong, because that's not what my pastor taught, or that's not what I see in the Bible. That's not your call. You're not called to be some warrior that goes around slashing everyone. But what you are called to do is protect the fundamentals of the gospel in your home, with your family, and at this church at large. When wolves come in here, yes, it's the elder's job to fight them off, but a lot of times it will start in your ranks before we even smell it. And it's your job to know your word and fight it off. 
So we see it outside of the church. There is attacks all around the world. There are pagan religions that claim to be Christians and their worldview is an idea of it's what I have to do. I have to give enough. Some of these churches will actually monitor how much you tithe. I have to earn enough. I have to go on missionary journeys for two years. I have to do all these things. And then hopefully, hopefully I'll just earn right standing with God. And that's the key word there, friends. It's hopefully, because that's where it lands. You're never sure of your salvation because it's dependent upon your works. And you don't know if you've done enough. So you're constantly in this cycle and you have to fight to protect against that. So we see it outside of the church with a religion that leads to death. And then we even see it inside the church. And if we carefully watch, we can hear some subtle rap, uh, uh, warped perceptions of the gospel that say, oh, if you just believe in Jesus, it's going to be all sunshine and roses. You're going to have thousands of dollars deposited into your account. You're going to have wealth beyond your belief. You're never going to struggle. That's not the gospel. Tell that to the people who are dying right now from thirst in Africa who are Christians. Where's their money? That's ludicrous. Others say that it's all about signs, wonders, and healings, that this is what the gospel is. If you're not seeing signs, wonders, and healings, that's not the gospel. Again, that's not the gospel message. Others will tell you you'll never suffer or anything like that, and, or we have to subscribe to a social gospel that we, as a church, have to go after every social problem in this world. No, we're called to preach that Christ came and lived and died and rose again. And that will turn wicked people to saints. And that's our hope, is in Christ. That's not the gospel. Remember what we talked about last night, or last week, sorry. That uh, uh, we need to have discernment. And discernment is knowing not right from wrong. That's too easy. It's knowing right from almost right. And all of those three and more that I listed will all have five, ten plus Bible verses or more that they can back up their position with using the same Bible you read from and say this is true because they're twisting the text. You can make the Bible say whatever you want if you really try. So you need to know your word to know right from almost right, not right from wrong, because they're all going to sound right. And we have to have discernment and stay alert. Paul talks about this in Colossians 2.8. He says, see to it that no one takes you captive by what? By philosophies and empty deceit. According to what? Human traditions. According to human traditions. And according to the elemental spirits of this world. And not according to who? To Christ. See, Christ is the bedrock of the gospel. And it's this gospel that should dictate how we live and not tradition. Tradition's helpful and it's fun and it's good, but it can't be our master. The second math equation for you to consider this morning is hearing plus heart change equals confirmation. Let's look at verses 6 to 9, which says, The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And, the, uh, and after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. 
So what we see going on in these verses is that Paul and Barnabas are now back in Jerusalem. The Antioch church is in confusion, so they they commission these men to go back and get an official statement from the church. And they go back and debates arise there, but what they need is the church to make an official ruling for when they go forward into the missionary journeys and they keep encountering this problem because they will. They need to say, that's nice that you believe that, but that's not what the church believe. So that's the point of what's going on here. So after they listened to Paul and Barnabas report and the debates that ensued because of it, Peter then stands up to make an address. And if you remember earlier in Acts, we talked about how Peter had encounter after encounter with Gentiles and and engaging them with the gospel of Jesus. And we said that Peter's heart and the direction of the church was beginning to change because of these encounters from the Samaritan in Acts 8 to Cornelius and his household and the vision in Acts 10. Peter began to see that the the hope in the gospel is not just as narrow as the Jewish nation, but rather it's for the entirety of the world. And I understand this little passage here as Peter making an argument from his personal experience of what he's experienced. And he's trying to make a few things clear about God. For one, he makes clear that God is concerned about the heart. He's not concerned about the external things. He's concerned about your motivation, the internal Things We see that with King David, right? And so God is concerned about what's going on inside, not outside. Second, Christ died for all. All that the Father has given him, he's died for. He made no distinction, which brings to the third point, and he confirms that he makes no distinction by giving them the Holy Spirit, by filling them with the Holy Spirit and not making distinction between both people. This is really important and fundamental, which brings us to our third point, which is relationship plus rules equals captivity. Verses 10 to 12 says, Now therefore, why are you putting God to the test? By placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear. But when we believe, uh, sorry, but we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. And all the assembly fell silent and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related the signs and wonders that God has done through them to the Gentiles. The word here in verse 10 for testing God literally means to examine for the purpose of of finding fault and rejection. You see, they, they, they heard all of this good news and there was so much skepticism about this gospel. They said, surely this gospel you're preaching is too good to be true. There has to be more. It doesn't make sense with my paradigm. It doesn't make sense with what I was taught, what I taught my kids. It doesn't make sense with all these rules that I tried all my life to follow. So instead of just accepting it and rejoicing that the burden has been lifted, they go, uh-uh, I'm gonna find fault with this. And what that speaks inadvertently communicates that they are testing God because they're literally trying to find fault rather than just accepting. They're not just going, oh, I'm going to test and see if God's good. No, they're trying to actively find fault to make their point, and that's sin. And it's as if Peter was saying, I don't know about you guys, but I never felt like I could keep the law. Like I was always under this burden. I could never keep them straight. What about you, Bartholomew? Yeah, that's what I thought. None of us could feel like we could keep this straight. Like, could anyone remind me really quickly how far I was allowed to walk on the Sabbath? You know, am I allowed to eat this llama meat? What about turkey? Maybe bacon? 
probably not bacon. But uh, what about yoga pants? Are those the for forbidden mixed fabrics or they just poor taste for me as a male to wear, right? So like he just couldn't keep them straight. No matter how hard he tried, he never felt like he was measuring up. And he's saying to the rest of them listening, what about the rest of you? Do you ever feel like you could measure up? So if all of us collectively can't feel like we measure up to the law, why then would we burden the Gentiles with it? And even to reinforce that, why would we burden them with it when none of these things could save us anyway? It's faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ that saves us. What he did, not in what we've did. And if we're honest, we sometimes fall into that trap ourselves. As we know him, as we believe in him, as we go, grow to love him, we sometimes fall into this little trap of, man, my relationship with Christ feels a little too good. What, what can I do to just keep this good? What can I do to add to just make sure I, I stay in right standing with God? I know I'm saved, but what can I do to just make sure I always feel saved? And so it's like, okay, okay, I got to go to church. All right, I'll go to church every Sunday. I won't miss a Sunday. Well, I got to give. Oh, I, I should give some money. Yeah, that makes sense. Well, maybe I should study my Bible, but I can't just read it like a book. I got to really dig in and study it in a certain way and a certain frequency. And all we're doing is check, check, checking, checking off the boxes on our list. And it produces this legalistic idea that Paul, that we just read about in Galatians, was trying to cut through, trying to remove over and over again. It's a dangerous trap that we get ourselves into. And God has called us to freedom, church. He has called us to freedom. God has called us into relationship. He has not called us into a performance trap of trying to keep a certain number of rules in order that we might remain right with him. So rather we do these things like pray, read our Bibles, fellowship with one another, come to church Sunday after Sunday because we have the privilege to in Christ. You see, our relationship with Jesus is what dictates our following of the law, not the other way around. We don't love Jesus by following the law. We follow the law because we love Jesus, because it's an enjoyment at that point, because you enjoy to do. I enjoy to do things for my wife, and we enjoy to do things for our Savior. But don't get me wrong, our conduct matters. In the book of James, it tells us that faith without works is dead, but it's not talking us into a performance trap that will lead us to doubt and fear. So here's the bottom line, why this impacts the purity of the gospel. What you have to understand and what you have to remember is that not, none of us in this room can or ever did earn our salvation. It was given to us as a free gift from God. There is nothing that I can do or you can do that will secure our salvation all the more. It's sealed through the promise of the Holy Spirit. There is nothing that we can do to mess that up. If you could mess it up, you would have done so already. Your salvation is secure through a covenant that was made between Jesus and the Father on the cross. That's an unbreakable covenant. If you are saved, you can't do anything else to make your salvation more secure. You did nothing to earn it. You did nothing to keep it. And you can't mess it up. Because if you could, you would. And this all points us to the fact that it's not through me, it's not through you, but it's through him and for him. And by him, we can do all things. And what that verse is talking about is that we can overcome this world and remain and persevere until the end. It's not so you can play soccer better that you can do all things. It's so that you can literally be with Christ forever. By his strength, you can do all things. So how many of you feel like that sounds a little risky? Right? This doctrine sounds a little bit risky. 
And that's okay. I wanted you to feel that because that's what the Jews would have been feeling here in this text. I understand this. I understand this grace thing you're talking about, but it sounds a little risky. Like I could abuse that. And I would say, well, that doesn't give you a license to sin. The grace of God does not give you a license to sin. Rather, if there has been no transformation in your life from the day that you have put your faith in Christ, if there is no fruit of salvation in your life, guess what? You're probably not saved. If you are more like the pagan now than you were the day that you supposedly put your faith in Christ, that's an issue. That's a whole different topic. I'm not talking about perfect Christianity here. I still fall and stumble. I am not perfect. But that the basic trajectory of our lives is conforming to Christ and not away from him. Because if it's going away from him, you're just sitting in this chair comfortably on your way to hell professing and going through the motions of Christianity, but never knowing God. We are saved through Jesus Christ, not through our works. Nothing we can do, Ephesians 2.8 says, because it's a gift. Because if we could do it, then we could boast. We could take credit for it, but we can't. The rest of you aren't going to get to heaven, then I'll be there. I'm like, suckers, you got here by Jesus. I did it on my own. That's impossible. It all is through the work of Christ. Which brings us to the fourth equation today, which is report plus reinforcement equals truth. Verse 13 through 21 says, After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take them a a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written, after this, I will return and I will build the tent of David that has fallen. I will build the ruins and I will restore it. The remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by his name says, the Lord who makes these things known of old. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses had in every city those who proclaimed him and and for he read every Sabbath in the synagogue. So you may be thinking, well, what just happened here? Well, let's quickly just recap the story. We've had this debate over the heart of the gospel. We concluded that it's worth fighting for. We saw a discussion about it. And then they come to this big sort of con- uh, constitutional convention. Peter gives a report of what he has seen and experienced. Paul and Barnabas give a report of what they have seen and experienced. And now James, the just, steps up to the plate, uh, who is, by uh, by the way, taking prominence in Jerusalem, even over um, uh, Peter. Peter, which is was quite wild. And James acknowledges the reports that were given, and he comes alongside of them, and he begins to reinforce those reports with the truth of God's word. He quotes Amos 9, 11 to 12, and this truth that he affirms, just before he quotes uh, Amos, he uses a key word, and I don't normally use Greek in my, my sermons because out of respect for you, I don't want you to feel like you can never read your Bible without knowing Greek, but I can't ignore this one. The Greek word here, just before it would be laos, meaning this nation. And this group of people that historically had been attributed to the the nation of Israel, this word was only used for the nation of Israel, but now James is using that word for both Jews and Gentiles, saying they're both the nation of God. They're both God's people. And this is fundamental. It's not all about the Jewish nation. It's not all about the Gentiles, but it's all about those who are in Christ Jesus are now 
the true Israel. And that's an important thing for us to understand because that idea even impacts how we worship here today. If you look around the world, sorry, the world, the room, we are collectively God's people coming from different experiences, coming from different parts of the country, coming from different parts of the world, even different races, different socioeconomic experiences. And we all come together under one roof, one in Christ as his chosen people. But what I really want you to see here is what James is doing. It's what he's teaching us passively. He's quoting Amos because he's not, he's not just allowing the experiential reports of, from Peter, Paul, and Barnabas to stand sufficiently on their own. Now, you might be saying, well, these are really trusted men. Why wouldn't you just take them at their word? Well, he is, but he's teaching us uh, passively the idea that we must connect everything we hear, everything we experience through the word of God. It, there's nothing on its own. It all filters through the word of God. How does God's word validate my experience? We should filter everything we hear, even if it's the most respected preacher like Dave. We need to make sure we're filtering everything through the word of God. Because the word of God is what's true. The word of God is what's infallible. The word of God is reliable. It's perfect. It is without error. It has not been changed. It is breathed out by God. And it is to be trusted, and we must filter everything through it. So when we, uh, uh, so and that's what he's telling us to do. And then we see in verse twenty, he gives us this interesting list. And and you might be thinking, well, what? That's a kind of random list. Like, don't have immoral sex and don't strangle animals, or at least eat the meat of strangled animals. And you might be thinking, well, what does that all mean? Well, let's hit the easy one first, sexual immorality in the pagan world. Now, just quickly, that's a blanket statement of a word. Uh, sexual immorality is any type of sex that is outside of the covenant of heterosexual marriage, of male and female together. So anything outside of that premarital sex or anything outside of God's covenant relationship that he has set up is sexual immorality. And so sexual immorality was uh, promoted as normal, was expected at, as the, uh, the normalcy of the day. So the whole culture is saying, this is good, you should do this, and they're celebrating it. And they're saying, well, just because that's celebrated doesn't mean you should go and participate. You must abstain from it. And what they're actually communicating is that the moral law of God doesn't change. It hasn't ended. We are still under his moral law. Well, you might push back then and say, well, what about the other ones? What about lying? That's moral. What about murdering? That's moral. Stealing. Those are all moral. He's not saying that now that you just don't have to have sex, but you're free to go murder someone and lie about it. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is because this is so predominant in this time, it has to be addressed. It has to be singled out. And a lot of us today would say, well, you're making that a special sin. Well, the world is making that a special sin. They had to address it head on. But what about with this not eating meat from strangled animals, from blood or food polluted with idols? Those things are really offensive to the Jews. This is fundamentally coming down to fellowship problems between the early church, uh, that these Jews were all raised with the law. That's why he referenced the law being read. And he's saying, you know, don't make it hard for your fellow Christian or Jewish Christian to have a relationship with you. If you have them over to their house, don't eat a bloody steak in front of them. And I'm not swearing like an Englishman. I'm just saying don't eat blood in your steak, right? Uh, you know, boil it for them. Don't make it hard to fellowship with them. Be gracious towards them. So from this ruling, I see two 
complementary principles that we can apply to our lives as we lived grace-filled. The first is, as those under grace, we are not to make non-biblical requirements of others. In that day, that meant not forcing circumcision or other Jewish uh, traditions on the Gentiles. Today, this means that we don't make areas of our lives that is not specifically spelled out in Scripture the normalcy for someone to be a good Christian. Because they're not doing it like you, they're unspiritual. That means that, for example, how you dress. You might think, well, you know, I would never wear that to church, right? How, how we run our church, the standards of living that we think proper, our personal tastes, our music preferences, including our worship services. If we thrust any of these on others as necessary for life-giving grace, we repeat, repeat the same sin of the Judaizers. Because we so easily push our preferences on others as Christians. We assume that they will either do the things our way or they're less spiritual or even unspiritual. We too often think, uh, force people through the paces of our own heritage before we fully accept them as brothers and sisters. And sadly, the church will emanate and, and broadcast and radiate that more, our preference, than we will the gospel of Jesus Christ. And one of the reasons, though not the only one, I could list many, one of the reasons why we should protect ourselves from this is because how it makes us respond to others. I think Winston Churchill actually gave a really good illustration of this. He talks about a family who were at the lake for a picnic and, and the five-year-old boy fell into the water and he's bobbing up and down, he's drowning, and none of the parents could swim. And they're... they're <coughs> Excuse me, wow. Uh, he, uh, he, they were going uh, bananas because they didn't know how they were going to save their son. And then a passerby comes. He sees what's going on. He jumps headlong into the water in his full clothing. And he swims. And thankfully, he grabs the boy before he goes down for the last time. And as he's bringing him out of the water, the mom's screaming, Hey, where's Johnny's cap? Where's his hat? Somehow in all of the commotion... His cap went missing, and the mother, instead of being thankful for her son's deliverance, is like, where's his cap? She found something to be critical about. And it's so easy for us to be like that woman, especially when we relate to other brothers and sisters in the Lord. Somehow, others are never just quite right in our eyes. There's always something that's more that's needed before they measure up. And such an attitude is bad for us, and it will kill a church. The second principle that we should live is because we are under grace, we gladly restrict our freedoms for the sake of others at times. There's not anything extrinsically wrong with eating a rare steak, but James is saying, as I said, if you have them over, come on, make some, make some progress with them. This is the same thing that 1 Corinthians 9, 19 to 21, Paul says, For I, for though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law. Though not being myself under the law, I became one outside of the law to those outside of the law. Uh, uh, but although uh, under the law of Christ, I read that wrong, sorry, and that I might win those outside of the law. And basically what it's saying is we just need to be versatile. We need to protect the message. We should never add to it or change it or make it a little lighter so people come to our church. 
uh, but we should be actively removing any boundaries that we set up that are not spelled out in Scripture that are hindering people from coming and experiencing the grace of Jesus. That could mean our worship preference, that could mean our, our, our service preference, or whatever, or clothing preference, whatever it might be. We need to remove these things that are hindering people from coming and experiencing the gospel that are not spelled out in Scripture. And James's magnificent pronouncement carried the day that day. And who could take issue with the most scrupulous of all Hebrew Christians? A man whose piety was admired the most among all Orthodox Jews. A man who led a life of such exemplary self-denial. So let me finish this off by reading some of the remainder of our verses, starting in verse 22. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them to send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas called uh, Barasbas and uh, Silas, leading men among the brothers with the following letter. The brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers who are the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, greetings, since we have heard that some persons gone out from us and troubled you with words unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions to, it seemed good to us having come to one accord to choose men and send them, uh, uh, send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas who, uh, who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and for what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourself from these, you will uh, do well, fare well. So the apostles and elders, they drafted a letter together with Paul and Barnabas, and they sent it along with their friends to take it back to Antioch. And this letter's conclusion was almost a word-for-word suggestion of James's reading. And the council's proclamation has actually been called one of the most courageous documents in the annals of church history because the authors who, who uh, uh, wrote it declared the truth even though they knew it would antagonize the Jewish nation. From this time on, you can almost pinpoint it, evangelism to the Jewish people became harder and more difficult. While they were still trying to do ministry to them, the apostles heroically refused to say or do anything or add just a little bit of leeway to impede the progress of the gospel to the Gentiles. And I call that bravery. And we're called to do the same. And then lastly, verse 30 to 32. So when they were sent off, they were sent to Antioch and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. And Judas and Silas, who themselves were prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. And you might be thinking, well, why were they encouraged? Their letter imposed some dietary restrictions. Why are they happy about that? And I think this letter from a female student that I found who were writing back to her parents from college actually sums up what's going on. I'll read it to you. It says, Dear Mom and Dad, I just thought I'd drop you a note to clue you in on my plans. I have fallen in love with a guy named Jim. Uh-oh. He quit high school after grade 11 to get married. After a year ago, he got a divorce, and now we met. And we've been going steady for about two months. And we plan to get married in the fall. At any rate, I have dropped out of school last week. <coughs> Excuse me, sorry. <clears throat> Although, I plan to finish college sometime in the future. That's the end of page one. And then it says there's more on the back. 
Mom and dad, I just want you to know that everything I've written so far is false. None of it's true, all in capital letters. But, mom and dad, it is true that I got a C- minus in French and I flunked math. And it's true that I'm going to need some more money to pay for my tuition. And what we see there is that news that may not sound particularly good sounds excellent when it's seen from a different perspective. <laughs> for believers in Antioch, a few minor restrictions in relation to their Hebrew brothers was nothing compared to the full burden of the law, which the Jerusalem council could have imposed on them. Compared with what Jerusalem council did, this was a great relief for them. So what does this mean for us today? First, it means that we must preach grace and grace alone. We must speak it and live it out in our lives. Because for by grace, we have been saved through faith. And it's not our own doing, but it's a gift from God. Not a result of our works, so that anyone may boast. Ephesians 2, 8 to 9. That's our message, and we must live it. We must preach it, and we must protect it. And second, just like James the Just, we must tolerate nothing else but that message. Grace is risky, and it can be abused. But just because something can be abused doesn't mean that it should be rejected or added to to help God out a little bit. Giving our kids the keys to our car is always a risk. But we want to see them grow and learn. So we do so out of love. And God gives us that same ability to even choose wrongly. But he continues to sustain us daily by his grace. Amen. Let's be people of grace. Would the worship team come as I pray? Father, I praise you, Lord. And I thank you that you are a good God. Lord, I thank you for the decision of the Jerusalem Council, Lord, and the direction that the churches went because it resulted in all of us, Lord, being free to live in your freedom. God, I pray that you would help us to identify areas where we think that we must help you out by adding rules that are not spelled out in Scripture, Lord. May we not find hope in those things. They might help us, but may we not find hope in them for our salvation. May we always know that our salvation is secure because it was bought with your death, with your blood, and with your resurrection. Lord, help us to live in light of that. In Jesus' name, amen.